You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, we invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. As we return to in-person worship, our church's leadership team thought that it would be fitting to postpone the conclusion of our series in 1 Timothy and spend this one Sunday focusing on what the Bible teaches about the joys and the significance of meeting together for worship in person. This is a very important topic as churches all around the world adapt and adjust to a new reality that has been shaped by a pandemic. pandemic. Innovation within the church can be a wonderful thing as you come up with new ways to, to press the gospel into our lives. But innovation can also be dangerous as we begin to adopt pragmatic strategies to see the church grow. And we end up abandoning what the Bible says about that, how that growth is meant to be accomplished. One of those potential strategies that I'm hearing more and more of in the internet world as a strategy that should be adopted would be to, to multiply and to expand online content. You hear writers and speakers and church leaders talking about taking advantage of this historical moment when more and more people are online and looking for content to uh, shape their lives. Uh, that is one of the strategies that we could be tempted to adopt, where we, we, we put together online devotionals and training workshop, workshops and teaching seminars and podcasts and even small group discussions, and we put it all online and make it accessible from home. Now, I, I'm not one of the people who is against online content per se. Every single week, I benefit from content that is put online by other churches and other ministries. But, but the message that online content can send, perhaps inadvertently, is that going to church no longer matters. Being physically present in a physical church is just a matter of preference. Some people like it, but some people prefer to stay at home, to, to consume the content in the comfort of their own homes, because everything you could receive at a church, you can now receive at home. Well, there's only one problem with that. That's not a church. That's not a church. There's no such thing as an online church. There, there may be times when churches are compelled to gather online for a season of time, for a brief season of time, but that is not a real gathering. That is what we can call a virtual gathering. Virtual, like we know in the phrase virtual reality, is is something that is almost, but not completely. Almost, but not the real thing. Virtual reality isn't Reality and virtual gatherings are not real gatherings. According to the Bible, we are not gathering as God's people for worship unless we're gathering in person. I mean, we all know this by experience. We, we've all sensed uh, what we've lacked as we've gathered online. We, we've said, I, I've heard many of you say to me, it's just not the same. It's not meant to be the same. 
Uh, it, it is a substitute, but it is not a sufficient substitute for gathering in person. Nothing can replace the many blessings of being together in person. Our text today is going to help us understand this. Psalm 84 was written by the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah. They were descendants of Levi and the Levites who devoted their lives and their successive heirs and families to serving in the temple in Jerusalem. Some of them functioned in the temple as, as caretakers, as custodians, as those who would serve in the administrative needs of the temple, and others participated in the temple choir. They were part of the worship team. They would write songs for congregational singing um, that the people of God would sing together when they were gathered. Now, 12 of those songs that the sons of Korah wrote made it into scripture. They are now part of the Psalter. They make up 12 of the Psalms as the sons of Korah wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Psalm 84 is one of those Psalms. As you read the Psalms of the sons of Korah, it becomes evident that these men loved being with God's people. They, they loved participating in corporate worship. They, they loved when God's people gathered in God's presence in God's temple, because that is when God chose to specially manifest his presence. Now, for New Testament believers like us, now we know that God's temple is no longer found in Jerusalem. God, God does not just manifest his presence in specific geographic places. Instead, the, the temple of God is now the people of God. We, we are the temple of God. And so is every faithful local assembly of believers. They are each a temple of the living God. There, there is a sense in which each of us is the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells in all who have put their trust in Christ. But the Bible also teaches that we are the temple of God together. We think about that passage in, in 1 Peter when it says we together are being built up as living stones to be a dwelling place for God. It is when we are together that God is especially pleased to pour out his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And so as we read Psalm 84, we need to recognize that the sons of Korah are thinking about a physical place. They are thinking about the temple. But we can apply that to our situation by picturing not a, not a place, but a people. Picturing our assemblies together. And we can apply his reflections, his affection for the temple to our gatherings together as a local church. And so let us read Psalm 84 together. We'll be reading the entire Psalm, verses 1 to 12. This is the word of the Lord. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, 
in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The title of this sermon is Loving and Longing for God's Dwelling Place. Loving and Longing for God's Dwelling Place. You may have noticed as I read this psalm that there are three descriptions of the blessed person in this psalm. Verse Four, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Verse five, blessed are those whose strength is in you. And verse 12, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So that is gonna form the outline of our sermon today. First, the blessing of dwelling. Second, the blessing of seeking. And third, the blessing of trusting. First point, the blessing of dwelling. The psalm begins with what you could say is the language of a love poem. How lovely is your dwelling place? Things are lovely because they are loved. The psalmist loves the dwelling place of God. We use that word a lot. We, We love simple things that we enjoy. We love Cats, we love cookies, but, in, in, but this, that's not the way that the psalmist is using the word here. He's, he's talking about the love that one has for a person, for a beloved one. He describes that in verse two when he references how his soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord and how his heart and flesh sing for joy. This is a yearning that he feels in his heart and in his body. If you uh, are in love with someone, or if you are, you've been married for a long time, you remember those early days of your courtship, you know what this feels like, this, this yearning for someone in your heart and that you feel in your body. It is a physical and spiritual longing that the psalmist feels for God's dwelling place. And his longing is so strong, not because of the what, but because of the who. He calls it lovely because it is the dwelling place of the Lord of hosts. He longs for the courts of the Lord. His heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. He he loves the temple because he loves God. He's not like a tourist who stops by a, a place of interest and admires the cutting of the stones and, and looks at the beautiful architecture and says, wow, this is a beautiful place. No, he, he is instead like a lover who, who lingers at the home of his beloved, not because the house itself is beautiful, but because she lives there. He loves the place because of the person within it. In the same way, the psalmist loves the temple, not for its own sake, but because that is where he meets with the God whom he loves. 
And that is why meeting together is so special. It's, it's where we encounter the love of God, our, our beloved one, in a special way. We can, of course, if you're a believer, if your trust is in Christ, you can, of course, encounter and experience God in private. There is such a thing as private worship, private communion with God. But it is different from what we experience when we are together. When we are singing together, I wonder if you felt that this morning as we were singing worship to God, as you, as you heard the voices of your brothers and sisters, you may have felt the spirit move in your heart in a way that you have not felt when you were by yourself. Well, that is not a coincidence. That is not something that we manufacture. That is the blessing of God as he manifests his presence in his dwelling place. This is a sacred assembly. This assembly is sacred because God's presence is manifested here. And the more you love him, the more you will love his church because this is where God dwells among us. There is a direct relationship between how much you love the church and how much you love God because the church is the dwelling place of God. We could draw on other biblical metaphors as well as, as the New Testament describes the church as the body of Christ. Well, if you, if you love Christ, you will love his body. Or the New Testament describes the church as the bride of Christ. If we love Christ, we will love his bride. The extent to which we love the church reveals the extent to which we love God. And so if you look at these verses... This, this emotive language of longing and fainting and singing for joy, and you think, I don't relate to that. That's not me. That's not my personality. I'm not emotional like that. Or I don't know what this really is talking about. In theory, yes, but not by experience. Then don't just resign yourself to that kind of relationship with God and with his church. Instead, seek to grow in your love for God. Not not just your love for people, not just your love for a community, but your love for God. Because your love for God is what is meant to shape your love for the church. And how do you do that? How, How do you grow in your love for God? Do some people just have more love for God than others? Well, no. God's love can be cultivated. Love for God can be grown. And it is primarily grown by knowing God's love for you. It is not the product of sheer willpower. It is the product of beholding the love of God for you in the face of Jesus Christ. It is the the, the love of God that produces love for God. Because he doesn't love us because we love him. We love him Because he first loved us. That's 1 John 4 verse 19. It is in knowing his love that we learn to love him in return. His love is what generates our love for him. And the greatest display of the love of God is found at the cross. Where where God gave his only beloved and only begotten son for sinners like us. And that is how we grow in our knowledge of the love of God. And that is how we grow in our love of God in return.
The psalmist continues in verse three. He says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. The imagery here seems quaint, but it is actually quite striking. The the psalmist's favorite title for the Lord, you may have noticed this, the, the, the title that he keeps using for God is the Lord of hosts. In some translations, God Almighty, Lord Almighty. The, the, the imagery here is of the Lord leading armies of heavenly hosts. We see that in verse one, verse three, verse eight, and verse 12. He is the Lord of hosts. God is the warrior God. He is the commander who leads the heavenly hosts. He is the God of angel armies, the sovereign Lord who rules with all authority and might. But here in verse three, the Lord of hosts is also described as the Lord of the weak. He is gentle, he is tender, and he is welcoming so that even the sparrow finds a home in his presence and the swallow may nest and lay their young. This is a beautiful picture of the tender mercies of our God, that all are welcome to dwell in the presence of the Lord of hosts, God Almighty, whether rich or poor, whether strong or weak, whether old or young, all can experience the blessing that the psalmist describes in verse four. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. This is the blessing, this is the promise of all those who are found in Christ. Everyone who is in Christ can be blessed with dwelling in God's house. It doesn't matter if you don't have everything together. It doesn't matter if you have fallen short of the standards that you have for yourself or the standards that other people have put on you. It doesn't matter if you are not a success story by the definition of the world. If the sparrow and the swallow can find a home with God, then you can as well. Blessed are those who dwell in God's house because we know that he will not cast us out. He will not shun us because of our weaknesses. The the Lord of hosts will not condemn us in his perfect justice and equity because his justice was satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. Instead, we can rest assured that if we repent of our sins and turn to Christ, he will hold us close to himself. We will find a dwelling place in his house forever. But what if it's not possible to be in God's dwelling place? I mean, even today, we have people who are watching on the live stream. You you can't be in the church. You can't be in the special dwelling place of God with his people. And that that is not unique to our generation, by the way. We're not the first people who have experienced this prolonged season of separation. Israel experienced that in the exile. The temple was destroyed. And the people of God were scattered to the corners of the earth. What we've experienced in this pandemic You know, 12 Sundays away from one another in the first lockdown, eight Sundays away in this second lockdown. It it, it really does pale in comparison to what the people of God have had to experience in the past. But the reality remains that we 
have and perhaps we will continue to experience separation for a time. What does this psalm have to say to us in that situation? What, what does this psalm have to say to you who are watching on the live stream who continue to experience this separation? Well, this leads to our second point, the blessing of seeking. In verses five to seven, what we see is that the psalmist shifts, shifts the focus from those who are in Zion to those who are on their way to Zion. These people are on a pilgrimage back to the dwelling place of God. And what is surprising about these verses is verse five says that they also are blessed. Verse five says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. These people, these people are blessed not because they are dwelling in the house of the Lord, but because their strength is in the Lord. It is a different blessing, but it is a blessing nonetheless. If they can't experience the blessing of fellowship within the temple, they can still experience the blessing of finding their strength in the Lord. Now, what does that look like? What what does it look like to find your strength in the Lord? Well, the context here shows us that those who find their strength in the Lord are those who are eager to get back to the temple. Verse five describes these people as those who have the highways to Zion in their hearts. It's those who have the highways to Zion in their hearts who experience the blessing of finding their strength in the Lord because God wants them to return. He wants them to travel on the highways to Zion and return to his people and his presence so that he, so he will in fact give them the strength to do that. That is his desire, and he will empower them to do what he longs for them to do. Now, I love the imagery of the highway because it reminds us, for those who are separated from the dwelling place of God, it reminds us that we're not the only ones who have spent time away. The paths to Zion are highways. It's the 400. It's it's busy. It's well-traveled. Many have gone to and fro away from the Lord and back. If you are on that highway, you you are not alone. This is not an experience that is exclusive to you. You are not alone in your experience of feeling distant from God and separated from his people. Others have been on the same paths before you and they have made it safely back to the Lord. Derek Kidner writes in his commentary, the way to God's presence is not as lonely or trackless as it may seem, but well-prepared and well-frequented. My friends, if you are on the highway to Zion, you are still blessed. If you love the church and you long for a return to the church, you can be happy in God. Because you know that that his strength will preserve you. His strength will carry you. His his strength will lead you down the highway back to Zion. And you will return to him. Verse 6 tells us that this is true even in the most difficult seasons. It says that these pilgrims are going through the valley of Baca through the valley of Baca. Baca likely refers to a tree called the balsam tree, which grew in the desert. Baca also sounds like the Hebrew word for weeping. These pilgrims had to travel through a spiritual desert, a a place of sorrow. 
where, where things don't grow, things die. But these pilgrims, they, they don't give up. They don't give up even though they're going through the valley of Baca. These pilgrims who are blessed with the strength of the Lord, they get to work. They, they start digging. And they make that place a place of springs. A place where fresh water floods the land and fills it once again with life. Listen, if, if you find yourself in a spiritual desert, perhaps even some of you here, you are in a spiritual desert. What, what the Christian divines of old called the dark night of the soul. And everyone will go through it, without exception. Then this psalm says, don't, don't give up. Don't, don't lie down in that spiritual desert. Don't languish. Don't, don't just give up. Instead, get up and start digging. Find the blessings of the Lord that awaits you, even in the valley of Baca. Even in the place of sorrow, there are blessings for you and you can make it a place of springs by his grace. This, this won't just be like finding a single oasis in the desert. The language is plural. They make it a place of springs. It's more like a water park than an oasis. It will be like finding a land covered with fresh water springs that are more than enough to satisfy now one cannot help but think about what Jesus says in John chapter seven when he stood up on that last day of the feast and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The living waters, of course, were a reference to the Holy Spirit. That if you come to Jesus, if you believe in him, if you look to his promises and his provision on the cross, then he will pour out his Holy Spirit into your life such that it will not only fill you but overflow to be a blessing to others. These springs of water will go out and bless those who are around you. And so we don't give up in the desert. We dig by the strength of the Lord and we find his unique blessings in that place. And verse six reminds us that we don't have to do this alone. It says also that the early rain also covers it with pools. The, the, the rain is falling. There's water from below as we dig and there is water from above as God showers down his blessings upon us. He doesn't leave us on our own. He, he meets us in the desert. He sends his provision so that the land is covered with pools. No wonder verse 7 says that these pilgrims, they go from strength to strength. As they travel through the desert, they're not getting weaker and weaker. They're getting stronger and stronger as the Lord provides what they need and as he transforms that desert into a place of springs and pools. And they will get stronger. They will go from strength to strength until each one appears before God in Zion. My friends, if you are in the desert, whether it's because you can't gather right now for worship or you have felt far from God for a long time, verse seven assures you that you're gonna make it. You're gonna make it. You will appear before God in Zion and, and experience not just the blessing of seeking, but the blessing of dwelling in his house. 
You're gonna make it. The, the one who strengthens you will empower you to go from strength to strength until you are with him once again. That is the psalmist's prayer. As he pauses in these wonderful reflections and offers up this simple request in verse eight, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Keep praying, keep seeking, keep digging, keep finding your way back to God in Zion and the Lord will hear and the Lord will answer your prayer. This leads to our final point. After the pause that the psalmist has written into the psalm, the Selah pause, he then turns his prayer to the one he calls the anointed. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. This is a prayer for the anointed one, the king of Israel, the one who is chosen by God to lead God's people. He calls the king our shield. Behold our shield. Because the king was Israel's spiritual and physical protector. He was to lead Israel away from the dangers of idols and protect Israel from the surrounding nations. The psalmist prays that the Lord would look on his face to shine the light of his divine countenance upon his chosen one because the strength of the king would determine the strength of the nation. Now as New Testament believers, once again, we we have the privilege of standing on this side of the cross and we, we know to whom this ultimately refers. This ultimately refers to the Christ, which means the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one par excellence, the the fulfillment, the one who makes it unnecessary for another anointed one to rule. And because Christ has conquered every enemy, we don't have to pray that God would protect him. Instead, we can just rest secure in the wonderful assurance that we will persevere. We will make it to the end because God's anointed reigns. He sits at the right hand of God. The psalmist explains why he prays for God's anointed one in verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. He prays for God's anointed because God's anointed is the one who will make this possible. He will make it possible for the psalmist to enjoy days upon days, each day better than a thousand elsewhere. What a blessing it is to just spend one day in the presence of God. Perhaps you have a favorite place that you love to frequent, a a vacation spot for yourself to go by yourself or with your family, and you think, oh, I just need one day, two days, five days there, and and I'm, I'm good to go for a few months. You know those kinds of places, those, those places of rest, those places of refuge, those places of special significance. Well, for the Christian, a day with God's people, a day with the church, a day when his people are assembled together for worship, that day is better than a thousand elsewhere. Just one day is so sweet and so satisfying that the psalmist says he would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of his God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. He would, he would rather just, you know, in, in the, the British parliament, you got those guards who just stand around all day. Their shift involves standing. And then 
marching when they're done and not smiling. Of course, they can't smile. Otherwise, they break protocol. They just got to stand there. He's saying, I I would rather be that in the temple of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Well, in in the tents of wickedness, I mean, they're tents, right? You're nomadic. You can travel. You're free. You can do whatever you want. And it's a tense of wickedness. You, you can go and rob people. You can steal from people. You can, you can live for yourself. You can live for pleasure. Well, the psalmist says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. Stand there and open and close doors than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The psalmist ends by explaining why the presence of God is so sweet and satisfying in the final two verses. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. My friends, every good thing comes from the Lord. No good thing does he withhold. He may withhold things that we ask him for, but that's because they're not good for us. It is no good thing does he withhold from us. Every good thing comes from the Lord, the Father of the heavenly lights, as James writes in the New Testament. God is our sun, and he is our shield. As sun, he gives us the light of his truth, and he gives us the heat of his love. And as our shield, he gives us the protection and security of those who are surrounded by his omnipotent arms. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The amazing thing about this verse, verse 11, is he he doesn't even withhold favor and honor. The Lord bestows favor and honor. He gives us grace and he exalts us. He lavishes his blessings on us freely and generously so that we never want to leave his side. And that is why a day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. That is why we would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And every time we gather as a church, every time we gather here on Sunday mornings or on prayer meetings on Wednesday evenings or with your tag or your flourish meeting, every time you gather with God's people in God's presence, you get to experience this. Gathering as a church may may not be the fulfillment of this verse. We will not experience the fulfillment of these verses until we pass through the gates of splendor. Our faith turns to sight and we stand before the presence of God. But this is a foretaste. This is a foretaste of heaven. The church is an earthly foretaste of the heavenly pleasures to come. And so the psalmist ends in verse 12 with one final blessing. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. If you trust in the Lord, if your hope is in him, your confidence is in him, you are looking to him for your security, assurance, your significance, then you are blessed because you will not just spend one day in the courts of the Lord. You will spend day upon day upon day multiplied by thousands upon thousands upon thousands until your days stretch on for eternity. This is the blessing, the eternal everlasting blessing that Jesus Christ, our Savior, has secured for those who trust in him. An eternity of days in the presence of the God who is our son and who is our shield 
and who is our salvation. My friends, my dear church family, this is why gatherings matter. This is why being together in person matters. This is why what we do together as a church is so incredibly precious. We are to love these gatherings when we have them and we are to long for them when we don't. As we close, let me briefly suggest three points of application. First, Psalm 84 should inform the way that we speak about the church. Now, we live in a culture that is characterized by complaint. I mean, it doesn't take long as you're browsing your Twitter feed or your Facebook page to to hear complaint upon complaint. And some of those complaints are legitimate and necessary. We, we do need to unearth injustice. We do need to work towards changing what is broken with our society. But if this language of complaint characterizes our speech about the church, then we have, we have missed this love that the Bible talks about that we can have as believers for the church. We want to be able to speak honestly. We do need to be able to assess and to redirect the orientation of the church when it has gone wrong. But we must also, in the midst of that, be able to say how how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. The church may be a flawed institution, but it is not a failed institution. It is flawed but not failed because it belongs to God, and God does not let anything that belongs to him fail. Christ himself is the one who promised to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is the body of Christ growing up into him who is the head. The church is the bride of Christ washed and cleansed by the washing of his word. And if that is how precious the church is to Christ, the body and bride of Christ, then who are we to throw stones at it? Psalm 84 tells us and informs us in how we are to speak about the church. Second, Psalm 84 should inform the way that we value Sunday mornings. Now, we live in a time when it is so easy to find a multitude of excuses to skip worship. I mean, I I have six young children, and it was not easy getting them ready for church this morning. It was far easier when we were on Zoom, when all I had to do was dress myself up, head out the door, and come here. My wife could take care of everything at home. The baby could nap at home, the kids could play, and the older ones could watch. It was, it was easy. It is easy to find reasons to stay home. You may have other excuses. You work hard all week, so you're tired. It's one opportunity to sleep in. Your kids love competitive sports, and they, have, they frequently have tournaments on weekends. Or you have family outside of town, and you, you want to go and visit them regularly. I mean, none of those are wrong in themselves. They, they could all indeed be good excuses. But if they become regular and routine, then something has gone terribly wrong. Psalm 84 challenges us to become the kinds of people who love the church so much that we feel its absence in our lives. We, we miss it. We, we long to return. We're saying, when will we return before the Lord? A day there is, a, is better than a thousand elsewhere. That is the vision 
of the relationship with God and with the church that Psalm 84 sets before us. To love his dwelling place. To long and faint for the courts of the Lord. And so if you love the church like that, it's going to change your priorities. That you won't just kind of cram the church into the midst of the multitude of other priorities that you have. Instead, your other priorities will fit around the priority of the church. Lastly, Psalm 84 calls us to remember to help those who are still on their way back. Those who are still traveling on the highways to Zion. Even today, there are people tuning in on our live stream who who cannot be with us for legitimate reasons. Those who are here, if you are here, you have a role to play in God's sovereign care for those dear brothers and sisters to help them to go from strength to strength, to to help them to journey through the Valley of Baca. We can help them until they're finally able to join us again. And so if you are here today and you know someone who is watching from afar because they can't be with us in person, I encourage you to, to set your gaze upon them to walk beside them, to let them know that they are not alone and that you will see them through their return to the Lord. And if if you're out there watching the live stream and, and you've never introduced yourself to us, you're just this anonymous watcher. You don't want to draw attention to yourself. You're a little embarrassed about not being in person. I just encourage you to make yourself known. But we can't care for you if we don't know about you. Let us walk with you on the highways to Zion because one day here is better than a thousand out there. May God give us the same love that he has for his church. May he carry each of us to Zion, the city of God, his eternal dwelling place where we will walk in blessed fellowship with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the gift, the good thing that you have not withheld from us this morning, that we can gather. And though we do not fully understand why in your sovereign providence you have ordained the institutions over us to frequently suspend our worship, we trust that you are using that for your glory and for our good. We trust that you are pruning the church We trust that you are leading us through suffering and affliction for our sanctification. We we trust that that you will indeed make um, what is absent grow fonder. And we pray, Father, for a deeper love for the church, the body and bride of Christ, your dwelling place, both now and in the days to come. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.